0: The following podcast is an Embassy Row production.
1: All right, guys. Hi. Welcome to a brand new episode of I Love Wellness. Today on the show, we have chef, wellness advocate, and food and feelings enthusiast, Sophia Rowan. Hi, Sophia. (laughs) How's it going? I'm good. I always clap because I record at home now. I used to have, I used to have, you know, like the sound technician and everybody in the room and everybody would always clap. And I feel like I start off every episode like that. So sorry if you guys listen every week and you're sick of my clapping at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I'm personally a huge fan of all of your food, um, and the very vocal approach you take to your feelings on Instagram. So first I'm just very curious what do you mean by food and feelings enthusiast? What what do you mean by that? Tell us.
0: I guess I just don't really know what else is there. Like, what else is there? Like, I just feel like food and feelings are kind of it. Like, I, I that's it to me. I guess it's just like, it's also an intuitive thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think our first avenue to self-care, the, most, the easiest way to take care of yourself is feed yourself. Yeah. And so I think that sometimes self-care can really, can be confused with self-optimization in a way. And mm, what do you mean by that? well, I think sometimes we think that like taking care of ourselves has to be like a tonic or a tincture or a yoga or a getaway, or it has to be just this big thing. And Mm -hmm. taking care of yourself is really simple. I mean, it can be as simple as making yourself a meal at night. Really simple. Like wellness to me is food, air, water, sunlight, movement, purpose, really simple stuff. Like all that other stuff. I love a $58 smoothie, but it's not necessary. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's not necessary in my sort of wellness, take care of myself arena. So food and feelings is sort of just scratching the surface, but it also, you can get a lot done with food Mm -hmm. and really coming to terms with your feelings and food can be helpful.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I have a couple people on my team and they always say like, Oh, I don't care, like order whatever you want for lunch. I don't really care about food. I don't really have an opinion on it, whatever. But for me, I've always had this, I've always had this like innate, intense connection to food, whether it comes down to what I'm actually putting into my body and how I feel about it to what I'm making for dinner and sort of like the love that I feel like is like flowing out of my hands. For me, it's like very interconnected. And so I think, you know, it is the same for you as well. Um, So I'm just curious, sort of what is your food philosophy how do you like to cook? Where does your food background come from? I know you were a chef. So I'm just curious if you can kind of share your experience with food up until this point.
0: Yeah, so food wasn't even part of the plan. I was just this, you know, I was a college dropout and two-time college dropout, actually. And I didn't to I wow, twice. Cool. I needed two times. <laughs> and I needed a job. So there mm-hmm. was a restaurant hiring. I just saved money. Boom, there's my job. It, that was my, probably the sort of genesis of me even understanding that like a chef co- was a career for a woman. Mm-hmm. I just didn't really even realize it. I knew like Ina Barton for her it worked out, but I just wasn't sure it was going to like work out for me. And I didn't <laughs> want to do pastry. So I loved working in a kitchen and I worked in a few kitchens and I went to culinary school. That was my second sort of dropout. And it wasn't until I had just turned 24 that I had a really crazy health scare. Mm. I had a tumor on my ovary. I had to get a unilateral sulpingo phylectomy. So that's a oh mouth. God. It, it sounds a lot scarier than it is. I basically just had to have a, a, just a little tiny surgery and get this tumor taken out. But what it did is it made me very mindful about what I was eating, how I was eating. I was doing this typical chef thing where you eat like one meal a day and it's usually pretty carb heavy and it just, right? So I think for me, this idea of like healthy food. hmm Food that grows out of the ground, anything that's one ingredient, that's my philosophy. If it, mm-hmm. Whether it's conventional or not, organic, I don't care. This idea mm-hmm. that organic is the only way. Like conventional spinach is better than no spinach at all. And I also think we are—we have a big food access issue. So for mm-hmm. me, uh, kind of my line of work and like the, sort of the impetus of who I am and my style is food equity. I want to talk to people about accessibility. Mm-hmm. Because while I think it's wonderful that everyone's a vegan and all the green juice, there are millions of people on the planet that don't have access to be able to do things like be a vegan or Mm -hmm. have juices or have tonics, tinctures, all that stuff. So Mm -hmm. for me, it's really just about making cooking in the home feel like something anyone can do regardless of how much money they have or don't have.
1: I love that. And so for you, when you were 24 and you sort of had this health issue, was it that sort of moment in time that kind of changed your perspective on how you approach food? Because sort of like, I understand, like, you're the chef in the kitchen, you're on the line, like you're going to like, you know, like family meal, and you're just eating kind of whatever is there. And sort of to be able to kind of make that shift towards single ingredient dishes, things that come from the earth, whole foods really more than anything else. Was it that health experience specifically that sort of Changed how you approach food in general, or do you, would you say that it's more from the food equity standpoint, and that is really what has influenced your perspective on it?
0: Well, the food equity was the the beginning because I was mm. a care kid, so I wasn't in foster care my whole life. I, after ten years old, then I was mm-hmm. in foster care my whole life. So I have seen what it is to be not with food. I mean, mm. like the true sort of who I am as the slogan is if you're hungry, I want to feed you like hunger mm. literally inspires me. So the food equity thing has always been an issue for me. I, mm. I wasn't parented in and out of foster homes, group homes. I never saw any kind of health food. Right. So that also kind of trickled into even me being a chef. I had this idea that like the decadent excessive, that was the way to eat. Because yeah, I saw that. That's how. I mean, wealthy people are here; they're spending their money here, right? But that's not necessarily the way that makes you feel better. It wasn't until I got a little older and realized, wait, wow, wow! Like, I lived in a black neighborhood. I'm a black woman. I see like what we didn't have. I mean, I was mm-hmm. talking to friends, and I'm like, oh my gosh! Like, there are friend, friends that I have that actually sit down and eat with their family. They have experiences of going to the grocery store, like. I just didn't have those memories, so I think food equity and accessibility has always been a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think it wasn't until I got sick that I realized, wow, I I don't even have access to this stuff in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sick, and I need these things to t- literal bare minimum to take care of myself, and there's not even a grocery store. You know, like I, there are plenty of liquor stores, plenty of pawn shops, but no actual grocery store. So it wasn't until me being sick that I realized, wow, there's a big connection between you know sickness. Mm
1: -hmm. and So when did you start to create content and kind of create your online presence and sort of taking that message out to the world? Because Fuck. I love your Instagram. (laughs) Your videos are so great. I love how you're combining like eyeshadows with, you know, like turmeric cake and stuff.
0: (laughs) uh, You know, listen, I I tell, I tell people all the time, like it was, if you scroll back far enough, it's just pictures of food. And then I remember I always meet people and they'd be like, well, you don't look like a chef. And I'd always be like, what does that mean? Even Mm -hmm. I was just, it was sort of, it kind of was my like F you to people that would say that I didn't look like a chef, and I was—I um, like, am a chef, and I'm going to show you that I'm a chef because here's my face mm-hmm. and doing the chef thing. So it was that, and then I mean, this was like back when Snapchat was the vibe, and Instagram didn't have stories yet. God, like, I've never had Snapchat.
1: Like yesterday, I was talking to somebody, and they were like,
0: "Well, we really need to start doing Snapchat."
1: Ever since I was like, I don't even have that on my phone. I don't know how it works.
0: Someone <laughs> no needs to start doing Snapchat. No, like it's already. I think I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> like with TikTok and all that other stuff, like it's insane. Like it's already so insane, <laughs> um, but it was back then. And then they started doing, it was back when Instagram would let you do a video, but it had to be like 15 seconds or shorter. Yes. And, I remember. You know, and then it finally like extended to a minute. And then I, I think that I did get bad chef burnout. So I quit mm-hmm. all together and I actually worked at a makeup company, which is so wild. Really? Yeah. I got a job as a the social media product development at Milk Makeup. And Oh, that's I so had, cool. And I was, I felt so not qualified for the job. And I remember my first day talking to the director and I told her, I said, I am so not qualified for this job. I don't know about anything. And she's like, yeah, it's fine. Just don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so you well, just make I, it up as you go along. <laughs> I did, I did. Oh my God, Lo, it was crazy. Like I remember my first day, there was a girl I worked with, her name was Farah. She was like, okay, CC everybody on like a welcome email. And I looked at her and I was like, what does CC mean? Like I- <laughs>
1: You're like I come from the restaurant world what is this <laughs>
0: I have no idea like steak up off gotcha but I have no idea like Beaujolais great Jean Blanc whatever but like I have no idea what you're talking about but what that did that experience taught me so much about what it is to be on camera mm-hmm. and, right and like social media in general and shop yeah. and so it kind of set me up for social media in a lot of ways and you know, I, I, Moke bake Up taught me a lot. I don't work there anymore. And then I just started doing my own thing. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm a pretty pedagogical kind of educational person. So I feel like that sort of segued really well into the, into the work that I do now, which is like, sometimes we're talking about turmeric and eyeshadow and lipstick. And sometimes we're talking about racial justice. So mm-hmm. really, I'm a multi-hyphenate, just like every single person is on this planet. And so I don't really believe in creating like one line of saying, my Instagram is literally me. You know, sort of one
1: thing that is interesting about 2020 is that the ability to do it all, I think, is much has been much more like normalized and accepted. Do you know what I mean? Because I think a few years ago, you really did have to be in a certain lane, and especially if you were sort of in media and had a personality, you could really only do one thing at once. And I think that everything that we have seen through COVID and all of the civil rights movements that we have been participating in over the past, you know, two months. And I mean, longer than that, but you know, everything that has sort of been brought to the forefront recently has provided people with, I think kind of the realization that they can use their voice beyond like what their brand platform dictates. Do you know what I mean? And so I'm really happy to see all kinds of people sort of making a shift to recognize what is going on in the world and what is really important and like it doesn't fucking matter what your instagram feed looks like
0: at it the does. end of the day <laughs> it doesn't that idea is so silly and i think i think for me it's great because i feel like obviously race has always been an important topic for me i am a black mm-hmm. woman so that's always been something valuable to me and i've always been something i talked about but now i feel like there's listening where there wasn't listening before which is really great and i feel like it's the silver lining of COVID. Like, listen, it's a COVID is terrible. New York, as you know, was just hit just terribly. There are Arizona, Texas, California, Colorado. I mean, there are states just getting hit horribly right now. Florida, that's another one. It's truly, truly devastating. But the silver lining there is the is the creativity. Mm-hmm. People have had to get so creative, just in simple ways of making money in general. Mm-hmm. And so when you mix that with civil rights, I, I just feel like that silver lining is that people are home. People have nothing to do, but they're just looking at their phone. So they're sort of asked yeah. to, to notice the reality of black, brown, Latinx, marginalized people. And they're just mm-hmm. forced to understand that there really is a discrepancy in the way that people are treated and how people live in this country. Absolutely. I mean, listen, silver linings are like all I'm reaching for right now because it does feel like 2020 is just like, what is going on with 2020? But it is interesting, like that I feel like exposure and the truth, like it's this thing that's really bitter at the beginning, but sweet in the end, you know, like it's really tough right now, but it will, acknowledgement is, is, is important. And I, and I see there's being a lot of positive growth in the future.
1: And yeah, I think it's it's interesting to sort of see the progression of the conversations especially on social media from where they started kind of like at the end of May to where they are now. And I would I would agree with you. I think that we're sort of in this moment where the conversation is about acknowledgement and like if you are wrong, that is okay. You know what I mean? It's just are you capable of recognizing that A and then doing something about it B? You know what I mean? And what's been interesting for me is I have so many blind spots that have begun to reveal themselves over the past few weeks. And I think sort of like tuning into that listening and education for me a few weeks ago, it it was challenging. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. You know, you consider yourself to be an ally and then you recognize I have so much more work to do. And it's not the responsibility of marginalized communities to teach me how to do that work or how to be active. Sorry. There's something banging in my house during like an important conversation. I think (laughs) that the plumber is here. I apologize. (laughs) Um, but I think, you know, tuning into that idea of acknowledgement is critically important right now. And, you know, for me, I'm somebody that, um, has had to kind of go out and have conversations with people my whole life, you know, like you're on TV, like people are going to say things about you forever. And so I learned at a really early age, how to sort of be responsible for myself and how to take ownership over problems, my mistakes, whatever it is. And so I think, especially with love wellness, like as a white CEO and owner of a business, one of the most important things that I can do as a business owner is to acknowledge these blind spots that continue to reveal themselves to me publicly into our community. Because like white fragility is bullshit. And to dismantle white privilege, white people have to be willing to talk about this stuff and have to be willing to be like, I'm wrong. And I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I think people are so afraid of making missteps right now that that prevents them from taking action. And it's important to recognize, like, if you make a mistake, it's okay. You can learn from that mistake and move forward.
0: Absolutely. Accountability is the number one thing. I, I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of all black, brown, uh, marginalized people because we are not like some monoliths, like we are. all in the sure. um, But I will say that from what I understand and and my personal feelings, accountability is the number one thing I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. and understanding that, you know, feelings might get hurt. Like this stuff might hurt your feelings when you're learning new information or you're realizing that you're not the smartest person in the room, but that's just how it goes. The fragility is real. Mm -hmm. up the feelings. Sometimes you might hear something that might hurt your feelings, but you're not going to die because your feelings get hurt, right? Like we're going to keep it rolling. You're going to learn. We're going to move through this and we're going to do this together. It's really important to not let fear become paralysis because Mm -hmm. once that happens and you do nothing, then what? Right? So I think that this is absolutely a time to make mistakes. Best case, you say something you're doing in your research, you find out, crap, I didn't say that correctly, and you correct yourself. Mm
1: -hmm. Worst
0: case, you get called out, you say you're sorry, you move on, right? I'm call-out culture versus cancel culture every single day. I'm not a cancel culture person. People are human, they make mistakes. Call-out culture is great. It's how we hold ourselves accountable. It's how we have active conversations. Mm -hmm. They need to be um, confrontations, just conversation.
1: I agree with you. I also think like if you look at any period of personal growth in your life, you only grow when you experience things that feel uncomfortable to you. I, I just don't understand why people are so unwilling or, you know, don't want to go down that road. Because for me, when I'm like experiencing all of this discomfort through different things in your life, whatever they come from, I always have this underlying feeling of like, okay, but I'm actually getting somewhere. Yeah. I might feel bad, but I'm actually
0: taking some kind of step forward, even if I can't see what that step is at this point. I think there's what we're looking at, like wellness, like it's this place that you reach. And then once you get there, you just stay there. Like you go up and then you come down a little. And you, you're always trying to find that sort of equilibrium. And I think that 2020 is a big gulp of discomfort for a lot of people. Totally, And that's great. It's like, listen, why would you walk around with your pants too tight when you just get bigger pants? I just like <laughs> all need to change art. Just change your pants. It's okay. Nothing bad. This is growing pains. There's a reason why the, the term exists. Yeah. Um, this discomfort becomes complacency. So start with language, I think. And then mm-hmm. go from there. The language that you use is really important. And once you once you start to get more mindful and just conscious of the way that you're speaking and getting certain words in your brain, yeah, a lot of it just really comes supernatural. You know, mm-hmm. like it just kind of drips in.
1: Yeah, I think we talk about kind of like the language of wellness, and you do specifically. So when it comes to the language of wellness, I know that you are working to make it more diverse, more inclusive, more accepting. Sort of like in the wellness category, like where does this begin and sort of how can we all participate and help?
0: Well, I mean, I think it begins with what we see. I mean, it mm-hmm. begins, with writing, right. It begins with the fact that we don't ever see, first off, let's talk about ageism, right? We never see anyone in any kind of wellness ad that's over the age of 50. We don't mm-hmm. see gray hair. We don't see wrinkling skin. We don't see pores. So mm-hmm. it's how it's presented. Also a lot of even like vegan companies, there are a lot of white facing young people representing these companies. There mm-hmm. are cultures, Jamaica, all over Africa that have been vegan since the beginning of the time, India, like, and mm-hmm. it's just, you know what I'm saying? So, Of course. I feel like there are huge issues with marketing. I also just feel like those conversations, like actually just having a conversation about, wow, you know, there are millions of people in the world that don't have access. Like mm-hmm. in America, we're so lucky, you know, we, in December in New York, you can find a watermelon at the grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. In the middle of the winter time, you can go find fresh tomatoes. That is just not the narrative. For everybody all over the world. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm so happy that people feed, can find, you know, oh, I have this organic avocado from New Zealand. That idea just isn't the same everywhere. So I think we need to start looking more about at regional food. And, and we, we know things like, oh, it's here local, but local can be from five states over. Yes. I think we really, <laughs> need to, you know what I'm saying? Like uh-huh. we need to look at what's in our region. We need to have a, a greater understanding. Of the effort that goes into food, 40% of the food grown in this country is thrown in the garbage for cosmetic purposes. Mm-hmm. That means forty percent of the resources, 40% of the water, 40% of the work, you know, and less than 2% of the people at work in, in the United States are even farmers. Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking about making food or wellness more accessible, I'm looking at education. Mm-hmm. We just know this stuff. Like we need to understand that there aren't many farmers even here, you know, we're throwing food away just because it doesn't look pretty. Mm -hmm. We're getting avocados from Mexico and Mexicans are, I mean, do some research, look up Mexico and avocado wars. It's real, you know? So I just think there needs to be a lot more research and appreciation for what it takes to get the food on the plate.
1: There has definitely been a huge shift in terms of how we produce and provide food to people in America. You know, like we all, we all kind of used to be farmers, you know what I mean? You would have to actually go out and do the work and put the seeds in the ground and you'd have to wait for it to grow. And it was a process every single day. Like you would be fully food focused the whole day. You're like, okay, I got to grow it. I got to make it. I got to cook it. And then I go to bed and I start all over again.
0: Exactly.
1: Now, I mean, like you go to the grocery store, the avocados are just sitting there and you have no recognition of what goes into getting that okay. avocado to your grocery store. Even if, if you even have avocados at your grocery
0: store. Right. You make a really great point in terms of getting in your car and going to get your food. Here in New York, I mean, if you don't have a grocery store nearby, Mm -hmm. then you're going to have to get on some kind of public transport, which in the middle of a pandemic, like, okay, you're going to be on the bus or on the subway with your groceries and you're wearing a mask and there's gloves. And so accessibility, again, it always comes back to that and sort of honoring and understanding supply chain, where your food actually comes from, The resources, like what it takes, every single element that you eat, every single thing took water, took soil, took effort, you know? So Mm -hmm. I just feel like we should all just be so much more grateful for the food that we actually have on our plate because- Wow. I mean, the truck drivers, like, just think about an essential worker. We hear the word essential worker and we think, okay, nurses, doctors, people that work at the grocery store. I'm like, think about all the truck drivers and farmers Mm -hmm. and anybody who works in agriculture at all times, just construction workers, like sanitation workers, just thinking about what work goes into you being able to have pasta. (laughs) You know (laughs) what I mean? Like, it's crazy the amount of work that goes into it. So, again, I just think that this idea of wellness just needs to be a lot more mindful and a lot less about me and Mm -hmm. more about we. Mm -hmm. It's a we conversation. And putting the we in wellness. You're only as well as your neighborhood. So if you live in a neighborhood that is, it doesn't matter if you're doing great and you're doing all the cryotherapy and all the facials and all, what are you doing with that well body of yours? Mm -hmm. There's so much work into being well and having glowing skin, but then like, what do we do with it? we are supposed to take care of your community. Collective wellness is an essential part of wellness.
1: Thank you for sharing that perspective. I love that. It sort of like automatically plants a seed in my brain because, you know, we make wellness products for women, but the focus really is about like, how do you heal your body and self-care? And so I think just you sharing that in terms of like the next step, like once you're good, how do you continue to spread that throughout your own community is a really critically important next step.
0: It is. It's not just about self. And a lot of times we stop there. Yeah, and- for sure. I do. I, I'm i yeah. always like, oh, my bath, my vitamins, my dinner. Sure. And like, that's fine. I, listen, I whatever a person needs to find self and find wellness, that's your business. Like, I'm not going to tell you what not to, if it's supplements, if it's acupuncture, that's your business. But once you reach that mm-hmm. place, Then there's this collective wellness, you know, and I live in this neighborhood where the neighbors, they have to check on each other because no one else will.
1: Mm. You know,
0: no one else is looking after people. And I, you see collective wellness in black and brown Latinx communities, marginalized communities so much Yeah, and there's redlining there. The places just don't have access to the resources that they need, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, what is it? 87% of people in black, brown Latinx, uh, areas don't have a general care practitioner because they don't know where they are, mm-hmm. you know, like simple. They just go to a city MD or a walk-in clinic. Cause that's what's nearby. Yeah. It's like. That is a collective issue. It doesn't matter if I'm in my house and I'm thriving when 87% of my community is not. Right. So I'm great. So it's up to me to make sure I'm emailing and make sure I'm sending all the emails and all the letters to make sure that there's a farmer's market. Like it's been really challenging, but we're going to make that happen. You know, (laughs) like what can I do with my well body? And I think that that needs to be the question after what do I need for myself? And then it's, what do I do with this well self?
1: I love that. This sort of the next iteration of wellness. I love that. So talk to me about the pillow talk sessions. What is this? Tell our listeners about it. I I know it's, you know, you are creating sort of like an open and safe space to cover topics that are important to you. It's like stress, body image, all of this stuff. So where did you get the idea for this? Where can people sort of like tune in and find it?
0: So I got the idea for it because I did, it was one year, I think it was a year ago where I did like over a hundred panels in one year. Oh my God. A hundred in a year. Yeah. And there's like, that's every three days. (laughs) It's also like there's only 52 weeks in a year. So it was crazy. Like I think, yeah, it was like over a hundred and sometimes I'd be multiple in a week and I'm just doing all these things, always speaking. And some Uh of the conversations were always the Q and A or once it was over. I appreciate so much hearing stories from leaders in any given space, Mm -hmm. but I just felt like there wasn't enough space to also hear stories from the individuals that came to come and talk to me. Right. And those stories were sort of most inspiring to me. I'm always been sort of like a journalist junkie. Like that's my thing. I was like, I'm like a studs charcoal person. Like I want to know everybody's why and mm-hmm. how do you get to work and what's your thing? And like, I'm just so into people that the pillow talk sessions was just was really, I mean, great way to just meet people in person and make it more about the people. So you don't mm. come unless you want to share. Like that's the idea. This is a story share. Yeah. And the whole idea was that it was an in real life experience and then we're in the middle of a pandemic. So I had to make a difficult decision to pivot digitally, which actually was wonderful because right in the middle of the pandemic, you know, here we are having a conversation about, sometimes it's just a happy hour, but we're having conversations with people in Malawi, South Africa, Vietnam, all over the world. And we're just collectively getting together just to be like, oh my God, you're not the only one stressed. Great, thank God. (laughs) You know, Hmm. we have on a number of topics. Sometimes if we had one on intimacy, where we'll bring in experts to talk about intimacy, but sometimes they're really just... Three hour, let's hang out and cry and talk and share stories. And I, again, I love hearing, I love to hear about Emily Weiss. I love to hear how Glossier was created. That's awesome. But I'd also love to hear about Tabitha from Kansas, whose husband is an essential worker and she just lost her job. I, I want to know that story too. Or, or Bianca, who delivered a baby in a hospital with not, no one around her with a mask on, right? Like, mm-hmm. stories are also equally important. So I guess it's just, a space for me to to just validate people. Like this is a thing. This is a big room. Here's your face. You have the floor. Let's talk about it.
1: I agree with you. When I sit on panels, the most interesting questions <laughs> don't come from the moderator. They come from the audience and from people that want to talk to you yeah. and get to know you on a deeper level. Can I come?
0: No. <laughs> yeah, anytime. Anytime. Digitally? Like if, they're always free. We just ask that if you have a spare 50 cents, you donate to a black and brown uh, Latinx GoFundMe, like type in a zip code to a black and brown Latinx neighborhood and find a space. There are, it's interesting. You can go on GoFundMe and type in a certain zip code and there are GoFundMes for 300 bucks. 500 bucks. Wow. Just people that need this little bit of money to Mm -hmm. pay their rent or pay the rent of their restaurant or have a loved one in a hospital. So other than that, they're totally free to come to. They kind of go. Sometimes I have to go. Sometimes uh, we'll be in the middle of a pillow talk that'll be like two hours and I have to go, but I leave the Zoom open. Yeah, that's cool just keep talking. I mean, I've literally gone to bed and I'll wake up to pee and it's one in the morning and there's still 10 girls talking. <laughs> wow. It's been great to see the actual friendships, not just with me. Obviously I make friends with, with my pillow talk sessions, but to see other people and they're following on Instagram and it's yeah. just, it's really, really nice. Really,
1: You're nice. building communities, Sophia. I
0: don't can out here. <laughs>
1: Look at you. I love that. So I just have a couple questions left for you. And normally like I end the episode with this, but I think it's important to end on a different note. So first, what is your secret ritual? This is something that you do that makes you feel happy and helps you unwind. Like for me, like once a week, like my secret ritual is I have like a slice of Joe's pizza.
0: Oh, I love (laughs) it. Because it makes me happy. (laughs) I think it's a good one. I should implement something like that into my secret. I like this secret ritual thing. Yeah. I actually calendar my cry time. Whoa. Yeah. That's a secret ritual for me. First off, it validates my feelings. Mm -hmm. I do feel that. And it also kind of gets me to this place where I'm like, okay, so this is your designated 30 minutes of time to Mm -hmm. feel your feelings, whatever they are. You don't miss an appointment right? You don't miss another call. You're always on time for that stuff. So like, it's my way of making time for my feelings. It's also my way of like timing it because crying and sadness at a time like now, before you know it the whole day, You're slipped into it. And so it it enables me to be productive and still have feelings. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really important right now um, because it can feel so overwhelming. And before you know it, the day's over and you got nothing done. That's also fine too. But there are days where you do have to go do things and you do have to be productive. And that's why I think sort of like finding time to schedule it, even if it's like, okay, 30 minutes is my cry time. Let me just shut everything down, put on some songs. And like, feel how I feel. And whatever happens, set a timer. Once that time is over, now I can pick up my phone, I eat, I go about whatever. And I might still have feelings of sadness, but I've gotten a lot out. And that's really, really important for me and sort of my mental wellness.
1: God, I love scheduled cry time. (laughs) Or the
0: idea of that.
1: Yeah.
0: It works for me
1: because it's true on days when you feel bad it can permeate your whole day for hours and hours it's all you can think about wow I love that idea okay I'm gonna start scheduling in cry time on my calendar
0: Madeline if you're listening cry time calendar with someone too they can see it like my assistant she sees that that's in there so it's like oh it's doing her okay Let me know, no emails, no, like, you know what I'm saying? So it's nice.
1: (laughs) Don't slack me right now, okay?
0: (laughs) my God, no slack.
1: (laughs) No slack. Okay, my next question is What is one thing that you do now that you wish that you had learned earlier?
0: Time. I just wish I would have just not been so intense about now. Like, I believe in divine timing. You're exactly where you're supposed to be and you're right on schedule. And I'm just so much more lax when it comes to time. I was just like, My young 20s was just like, I got to do it. I got to rush. I got to, I got to be at this place and I got to work at this restaurant and I got to get this in my career. And it's just, we all just need to pump the brakes and press pause in a lot of ways. And I think that's another silver lining. So for me, I wish I would have just, the sense of urgency I had when I was younger is just so intense. Like I'm 31 years old. I'm okay with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I wouldn't, you couldn't pay me to redo my 20s over again, honestly, because what a weird time. 20s is just tough sometimes. Yeah. Most of my 20s, I really just spent thinking it's a ticking time bomb to 30. Like, oh, I got to get, I got to get A through Z done before I turn 30, you know? And now I'm, I'm 31 and I'm like, I have this new sense of creativity and time. And I also like lifetime learning is a reality that I didn't let myself have. I had thought I had to learn everything between 20 and 30. Yeah. And now, like whatever I can do whenever I want, whenever I want, however I want, I can learn how to play the trumpet when I'm 60 years old, if I want, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I think in New York too, like, well, not anymore, but how busy you were, that was like a marker of your social currency. You know what I mean? Like I have this to do and this and this and this and this call and this dinner and blah, 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 you know, and it made you cool to be busy. Oh, yeah. That
0: calendar packed was fire. A hundred percent. You're like, I want
1: to do these three events tonight. Because I am popular,
0: <laughs> yeah, even like I'm gonna change my outfit. I'm gonna do my whole thing, whatever. And it's like, please.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would say for me too. Um, through you know, COVID and working from home, I have remembered you know, how nice it is to kind of sit and take a moment. I, I will say I've always been somebody that's sort of like a homebody and like, I don't have to like be out all the time, but now I sort of feel more like validated in my realization. I feel less like guilty about it now and more like, Hey, everyone's clued in to sort of what I knew all
0: along. Totally. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. You guys get it? Like the home thing, how great it is. Cool. <laughs> great. Yeah. <You> too. <laughs> like it's nice to just Sit here
1: <laughs> and
0: not feel like I have to go do something. It's good for us too.
1: It is good for us. It's this
0: idea of boredom. Like boredom is important. It's it's how you can create really beautiful things. Mm-hmm. You know, like it goes back to being a kid. It's okay to not have something to have to do. One hundred percent.
1: Okay. Well, I think to wrap up the episode, I think people that are listening to the show. Um, can probably take this forward into their own lives and into their own communities. So I am
0: curious, as a Black woman, how do you need to be supported the most right now? Oh, I love this question. Also, thank you for asking me this question because this is the most important thing. In the work that I did with the Women's Prison Association with reentry programs, the number one question you ask, first question, how can I help you? What mm-hmm. do you want to know about you? So it's very important. So that question alone, wow. That's a big deal, huge. Cause not many people ever ask me what I need. They love mm. to give me things. <laughs> they love saviorship, but they're not really asking. So A, asking, holding yourself accountable to past mistakes and mistakes you currently make. That's a really, really, really big one. Especially for me, especially I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to admit my mistakes because it's how I grow. So that's huge. But separate from me, I think it's more about melanated voices in general. Mm -hmm. because I'm just one person. There needs to be a lot more diversity all over the place. But more than that is I genuinely want you to want it. Like Mm -hmm. I genuinely want white facing people to want me around. And I want to feel that. Yeah. It's the time in my life I have not felt super welcomed or I felt like if I was around, it was because they had to hit a diversity box. Cause like, you got to keep it up. You know, you got to have at least somebody who's not white. And I guess it's just like, I would love to know that genuinely white people care about me. And mm. I know that sounds really kind of silly, but it's, it's not, it's true. I guess I know that I have black friends that love me. I know they love me, but it's so many ways. Like I don't actually know when I walk into a room that's filled with white people, that they actually care about me. And that is how almost all black and brown people feel. And that is the same thing as saying, we just don't feel seen. And if we don't feel seen, then we're certainly not heard, which is equidistant to invalidation, which means like, if you don't see us, this whole I don't see color thing, well, if you don't see us here, then you certainly can't listen. And I guess I just want people to care about Black and Brown marginalized people. And I want you to show me that you do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Hopefully, everybody has something that they can take away from this episode and from you. So, Thank you. Like I said, it's not your job to educate us, but you have (laughs) shared quite a bit of information and knowledge on this episode. And for that, we are extremely grateful. So, thank you so much to my guest, you, the beautiful Sophia Rowe. This is I Love Wellness. Please don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast. And thanks again,
0: Sophia. You're welcome.